0: Welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the only podcast out there that features Michael and Josh. Hey, Michael, how are you today? I'm good,
1: Josh, and I think that's a slogan that we don't use very often. (laughs) Certainly not often enough. No, exactly. We are your weekly dose of Michael and Josh.
0: That's it, weekly doses. Not more, not less, just right. The therapeutic range. Today we have a The Goldilocks range. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Today we have a... (laughs) interesting and a cancer that we haven't covered before but is really important and that is endometrial or uterine cancer. An area with some progress, some limitations, but evidently an important area nonetheless. Today Michael will be giving us a little bit of a background and he'll be talking about the cool drugs and I'll be talking about the old conventional drugs.
1: Well think of it Josh as you are laying the foundation for what will come afterwards.
0: No one ever loves the foundations. Let's be honest. They love the uh, the they love the house, not the foundations. It's yeah. On.
1: They're boring but important, just like you. Uh, in relation to this podcast.
0: Oh wow. Um. Okay. <laughs> that, that that took a turn south. So I'm going to get Michael to give us some interesting facts about endometrial cancer, which I can't wait to hear. And then we're going to hit the ground running. Hope you guys enjoy.
1: Yes. Yeah, strap in. It's going to be a wild ride. So endometrial cancer, as Josh said, it's a cancer that is potentially thought of slightly less than breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. It's less in the, the public imagination, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. Endometrial cancer is the, depending on where you read, between the fifth and the sixth most common cancer among women worldwide. It is the second most common gynecological cancer, and in high-income countries, according to to UpToDate, is the most common gynecological malignancy. Which surprised me, Josh. I think that that's because the vast majority of cases present early and therefore actually don't need uh, the input of an oncology team, which is good news for everyone.
0: Michael, what are the stats?
1: So the incidence of endometrial cancer is highest uh, between the ages of 60 and 70, but there is a small but significant proportion of uh, patients who present very early. We're talking 2-5% to of cases occurring at ages less than 40. The incidence of endometrial cancer is higher in well-developed countries, and this is usually Uh, associated with its risk factors. The major risk factor and the the, the major mechanism of the development of endometrial cancer is estrogen excess. And this is either endogenous or exogenous. The most common cause of elevated endogenous estrogen, try saying that five times fast, is obesity. So naturally in countries that are stereotypically have a higher median body mass index. They're first world countries with uh, higher access and a higher proportion of uh, highly processed food, more sedentary lifestyle, that sort of thing. Exogenous estrogen is uh, most commonly encountered, shall we say, in the form of the oral contraceptive pill without the presence of progestin. Again, something that you are much more likely to find in a, a higher socioeconomic country. Other risk factors include tamoxifen use and uh, hormone replacement therapy after menopause, nulliparity, early menarche and late menopause. So again, extending the duration of uh, exposure to oestrogen, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, diabetes. Hypertension, and there's also genetic risk factors. Josh, what is what do you think is the most common genetic risk factor or genetic syndrome associated with endometrial cancer? Uh, BRCA mutation. Oh eh, no! Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it is it is Lynch syndrome. That was going to be a
0: high high second guess. It was,
1: I I knew it was uh, bouncing around in there somewhere. Lynch syndrome, which is a a germline inheritance of a deficiency in the mismatch repair proteins. There are four of them, but the two that convey the highest risk of developing endometrial cancer are MSH2 and MSH6. The most common histopathological subtype is endometrioid, or type 1, which accounts for about 80% of cases. Type 2 histopathologies include serous and clear cell as the most common subtypes. You also have things like adenocarcinoma sprinkled in there as well. As we said, the majority of patients present early, and this is related to the cardinal symptom of endometrial cancer, which is abnormal uterine bleeding, which obviously is something that a patient is very likely to notice and very likely to recognize as, it being, as something being wrong and therefore more likely to seek uh, medical attention. Abnormal uterine bleeding is a presenting symptom in between 75 and 90% of cases. If endometrial cancer is detected early, it carries an excellent prognosis with a 90% five-year survival rate. But of course, there are cases that slip through this metaphorical net uh, and present in the advanced stage. And that's what we'll be focusing on today is the treatment of advanced endometrial cancer. I will make a quick note about the FIGO staging because it's a bit different to the TNM staging that is commonly used in other cancers. The FIGO staging runs as with the TNM staging system from stage 1 to stage 4, but the criteria are slightly different. So stage 1 is contained to the uterus. Stage 2 is spread from the uterus to the cervical stroma. Stage 3 is annoyingly subdivided into four separate uh, components, but it is characterized by spreading uh, the spread of cancer to other structures in the pelvic area ranging uh, from the serosa of the uterus, fallopian tubes and ovaries in stage 3a to the regional or para-aortic lymph nodes in stage 3c. And stage 4, that's where things are drawn back into line with the usual TNM staging system, is metastases. So stage 4a is metastases to the rectum and bladder, and stage 4b is metastases to any other distant organ. The median overall survival for advanced endometrial cancer is still relatively poor, which doesn't take uh, two oncologists to tell you, but the median overall survival is less than three years. Now, as Josh will illuminate for us presently, the most common, or the standard of care chemotherapy for advanced endometrial cancer is a combination of a platinum and paclitaxel. And so, Josh, would you like to actually go into the nuts and bolts of why Carboplatin and Paclitaxel is the standard of care for advanced endometrial cancer?
0: Michael, I thought you would never ask about my that's, opinion. <laughs> that's a
1: lie. We plan these things ahead of time.
0: I know, I know. And yes, we do plan these things ahead of time. But it's nice to kind of think we're spontaneous and off the off the cuff today I'm going to be talking about carboplatin and paclitaxel for advanced endometrial cancer. This is an interesting topic, right? So this is the foundation of a lot of the GIST treatments we've had pre-existing for many years. And you're like, well, Josh, it's, it's chemo. Is it, why is it boring? Why is it interesting? It's because this was a non-inferiority phase three trial. And it's not from 20 years ago. This was published in 2020. A little bit of the background is that most, as Michael already said, most endometrial cancers are cured in the adjuvant setting with a hysterectomy plus potentially adjuvant therapy. Advanced disease, unfortunately, like most cancers, do hold a grim prognosis. And if you take out the really big players in the game, the rarer they are, I don't have data to back this up, but more likely they're going to have even worse outcomes because there's less research and there's less drive to really bring it to where breast or prostate cancer is. There are hormonal therapies which we won't discuss at length in this particular topic today Um, but most studies have demonstrated modest activity and relatively short progression free survival looking at the prior studies there was a phase 2 gog so that's a gynecological oncology group which showed activity with multiple chemotherapy agents including the uh, you know the the prior kings and queens of the market so doxorubicin cisplatin and paclitaxel with the acronym being tap this was a phase 2 study there was then a phase 3 study which showed that this was the GOG-0177, that TAP improves PFS, so progression-free survival, and overall survival over prior doxorubicin and cisplatin. So that was a study looking at dual agent versus triplet agent. So this was the first randomized trial demonstrating survival advances with combining chemotherapy. It was more active, but then more toxic. Note neuropathy. And the question remains, is carboplatin and paclitaxel more convenient and less toxic? And while it's known in ovarian cancer, but what about endometrial cancer? So that's the question here today.
1: It remains the automatic answer for many people who don't treat gynecological cancer when they're wondering what the chemo options for really any gyne cancer are. Oh, it's carbotaxel. But it's good to know that there is actual science behind that throwaway comment.
0: Yeah, I think with precision medicine becoming such a important part of our day-to-day treatment of patients, when you say, oh, it's carbotaxel, let's just push ahead in a very weird Australian accent that I just did. Um,
1: <laughs> it's the only type of Australian accent, isn't it?
0: <laughs> that's true. But you're like, okay, I understand that, but what are the other options? And while we will discuss that, the foundation of understanding what chemotherapy you can give and why is really important. So the question they pose, which I've already mentioned, could you use the common chemotherapy regimen of just carboplatin and paclitaxel to replace the triplet therapy as a frontline therapy for an advanced recurrent endometrial cancer? Can we omit doxorubicin? This is essentially a non-inferiority de-escalation trial, really. So the objectives, non-inferiority trial. Okay, I said that four times now. So eligibility, advanced cancer, so stage three or stage four or recurrent with poor potential for a cure, right? And they could have had a prior radiotherapy. So no prior chemotherapy, no prior sensitizing chemotherapy, radiotherapy was allowed. Um, and the treatment scheduling was the triplet therapy uh, every 21 days or the doublet therapy, which is what we want to win, which was the paclitaxel and carboplatin, also every 21 days. This goes up to seven cycles, unless disease progression or adverse events. So the first question with that comment is, okay, what do you do after the seven cycles? (laughs) Just, it's really, it's crazy that this was two years ago. And it's like, what do we actually give these people after that?
1: Yeah, it's, it probably shows that there's a a bit of a dearth of evidence in the endometrial cancer space if we're just getting to carbotaxel in the last few years when the drugs have been around for decades. And
0: something that I'm a little bit more passionate about after attending a meeting is looking at the quality of life measurements. So they did them before the assignment and then 6, 15 and 26 weeks after the start in the study. And the FACT, so they used a FACT survey, which is a functional assessment of cancer therapy, functional well-being subscale and an endometrial cancer subscale and a neurotoxicity subscale. The reason I bring this up is that what we're looking at in this trial is is two things. We want to know, is it efficacious? But B, is it better tolerated? Because if they're tolerated exactly the same, but you've got slightly better better efficaciousness in the triplet therapy, you're still going to go for that. But if there's a massive difference in quality of life in those subscales, then it definitely sparks a conversation about what's best for the patient. When we look at adverse events, you're like, Josh, you're already going to adverse events. There's a lot. Um, But that's chemotherapy, right? So grade two or higher physician-graded sensory neuropathy was recorded in 26% of those with TAP which is triplet therapy and 20% of those receiving TC, which is doublet therapy. So there's not really a difference um, with a P value of, I think, 0.4. So, you know, they're they're equal, which means one isn't better than the other. The most common toxicities um, of TAP versus TC was leukopenia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and other hemorrhagic adverse events. The TC arm... was associated with more frequent severe neutropenia, hepatic events, and my than the triplet therapy. While the triplet therapy had more auditory, constitutional symptoms, fatigue, cardiovascular, ventricular function, bowel problems, nausea problems, vomiting problems, diarrhea problems, anorexia problems, creatinine issues, anemia issues, thrombocytopenia issues, and other hematological infections. So tap has more toxicities than the dual treatment.
1: That's a hell of a list. That's a hell of a list. Look, the
0: there's a page in this actual document, and it's a page of every single uh, side effect, and we will link that in the description. But that's chemo for you. Chemo for you. You know, This is a list of what could potentially happen. Um, please accept the poison we want to give you to save your life. When we look at the updated PFS and OS, which is what we want to know. So the, tw- the analysis from 124 months... Greater than 65% of patients had died and 28% remained alive without evidence of cancer, which is actually pretty good. There must be the stage three that had sustained response. The adjusted ratio for death of TC relative to TAP was 1.002, which is the same. <laughs> yes. And for progression-free survival, the hazard ratio for, of TC to TAP was 1.032 crossing the statistical confidence line as always, which means they're exactly the same. With a PFS, with a progression-free survival of 14 months in the TAP group, so the triplet therapy, and 13 months in the TC treatment patients. Yes, there's a month difference, but ultimately it wasn't significant.
1: Josh, I'm seeing parallels between this study and the urethelial cancer study of cisplatin gemcitabine and mvac Mm. because it's it seems fairly similar that you know you've got a doublet platinum-based chemotherapy compared with a more toxic triplet or you know multi-drug combination therapy that is non-inferior and therefore sort of takes the crown as gc has taken with urethelial cancer is that is that sort of fair a fair um, parallel to draw i really
0: think it is I I feel that as we get a better understanding of biology, the idea of giving less toxic regimens better, it actually does help the patient and probably helps with the cancer and helps with the overall function and the the burden on the hospital and the burden on the financial system and all these things if you take them into account, some which would be intangible unless you did a study because we love to do studies on absolutely everything. I really do believe that. I think what's really important to say is that you can rest assured that if you're giving someone doublet therapy in the advanced setting, then it's not going to be worse in... Times in terms of response, progression free survival, and overall survival with toxicity and quality of life favoring T C and an incurable cancer. That is what you want. But, Michael, that's the foundations. That's not the sprinkling, the source, the you know, the infrastructure of the house. Bring bring out the big guns. Tell us what you're going to talk about.
1: Yes, it's, it's not the beautiful facade, it's not the bright red door, it's not it's not the eye-catching stuff, but it's very, very important. And it is important to the study that I'm going to talk about, which is the Ruby study. A study that was only published two months ago at time of recording, or even less, about a month and a half ago, in March of 2023. And this is a study of... Dostalimab. Now, Dostalimab is uh, an agent that we have uh, not really seen very much in Australia. It's actually not available under the PBS for any indication, even though the drug uh, company has tried. But it is a drug that is becoming more and more of a feature in more recent clinical trials. It's gained significant following uh, in the rectal cancer space, where it was responsible for a 100% complete pathological response rate in the DMMR early rectal cancer setting. And here it is being used in a very similar setting in the endometrial space. And the reason for this is that about 20 to 25% of endometrial cancer cases have a deficiency in the mismatch repair. Genes. We mentioned Lynch syndrome earlier in the episode, but there is also a significant incidence of just sporadic mutations in these genes. However, that is not the only focus of the Ruby study, and that will have consequences when we start to talk about the numbers and the statistical analysis thereof. But Ruby was a study of 494 people, 118 of which were confirmed either by central or independent laboratory analysis to have a deficiency in MMR. Patients were enrolled to receive carboplatin and paclitaxel with the addition of either distalumab or placebo. So there's that foundation that Josh was talking about with his study. It's still a very important part of treatment of advanced endometrial cancer. Inclusion criteria, obviously you had to have a good ECOG status and you had to have stage 3A to stage 4 disease and anywhere in between. Interestingly, Josh, patients with stage three C, that's uh, metastases to the pelvic or para-aortic lymph nodes, or stage four disease, were allowed without having measurable disease by RESIST, which I thought was interesting because it's not something you see in big phase three randomized control trials. Um, I've only seen it in a little phase one trial we're running at at my centre in the glioblastoma space because it's not always measurable
0: wow so michael this is interesting despite my study being published in 2020 and again it was a five-year update april 2006 eligibility was actually expanded from measurable only to include patients with figo stage three stage four and recurrent endometrial cancer who had not received prior chemotherapy this change increased the accrual rate and decrease the risk of death, resulting in a sample size from 900 to about 1,200, which is very interesting. So my study did something a little bit similar as well.
1: I wonder if it's the nature of the spread of endometrial cancer that you don't always have measurable disease, especially if it gets to more advanced stages. But yeah. that sort of runs counter, counterpoint to what one would expect. The more disease you have, the more likely you'd expect it to actually be. Measurable at some point,
0: which is interesting because the the outcomes when they look at the sorry, we're going back to my study, Michael. I don't, you've got the thunder. I've, I've Josh got is hi, you,
1: J- Josh is is hijacking the. Uh, I now.
0: Michael has the lightning. I have the thunder. Uh, um, so the, interestingly, for my trial, there was no difference between treatment outcomes whether they had measurable or non-measurable disease so that raises a number of questions right about our current study protocols but maybe it's just the cancer type itself
1: yeah absolutely anyway that that was a that was a little um interesting sidebar um in terms of the uh temporal nature of the disease, patients were admitted if they had an untreated first recurrence and they were allowed to have neoadjuvant and adjuvant chemotherapy if their recurrence occurred greater than six months after the completion of their adjuvant or neoadjuvant treatment. This is very common in clinical trials because you don't want patients who are rapidly progressing because they often don't have time or the functional status for a clinical trial and all of the rigors thereof. Now this is where it gets interesting, Josh, because Ruby, despite ostensibly being a study focused on on patients with DMMR endometrial cancer, also enrolled patients with proficient mismatch repair proteins. I hinted at that earlier in that only a quarter of patients had DMMR, 118 out of almost 500. So this leads into the endpoints, which were focused on progression-free and overall survival in both the specific DMMR cohort as well as the overall cohort. And this is where the statistical uh, shenanigans will will come into play a bit later. Secondary endpoints included overall response rate, duration of response, patient-reported outcomes using uh, two quality-of-life surveys, and safety. Notes on demographics, the median age was 61 to 66, the majority had recurrent disease as in a first untreated recurrence and the next largest cohort had primary de novo stage 4 disease. The most common pathology as is the case in the community was endometrioid was endometrioid with 20% of the population, the overall population having serous adenocarcinoma. So now we come to the results. And Josh, what do you think the hazard ratio for PFS and OS in the DMMR group was? I always enjoy this game of getting you to guess. Ah, uh, I know. And I actually don't,
0: I don't know this study, but I'm going to say the hazard ratio was 0. 0.3.
1: Well done. Great guess. So that's <laughs> the overall survival hazard ratio. So the- Oh, damn. The the overall survival of patients with DMMR endometrial cancer at 24 months was 83.3% versus 58.7% with a hazard ratio of 0.3. Now, because this wasn't a primary endpoint, there's no p-value, so we don't know how statistically significant it is, but numerically obviously significant. The progression-free survival at 24 months, so 61.4% of patients in the distalumab group, compared to 15% in the placebo group, had not progressed. For a hazard ratio, and this is going right up there in the hazard ratio hall of fame, is 0.28, with a p-value of less than 0.001, so statistically significant. If you delve into the supplementary material and look at the PMMR-only group, The progression-free survival at 24 months was 28% versus 18% with a hazard ratio of 0.76. Again, no p-value. The overall survival at 24 months was 67% versus 55% with a hazard ratio of 0.73. So there is a benefit in the PMMR group. It's just comparatively modest. And this really sets the stage for the overall population, because you really have two extremes. You've got 0.28 compared to 0.76, 0.3 compared to 0.73. And the overall population, rather unsurprisingly, splits the difference. So, for progression-free survival, 36% of patients versus 18% were alive and without progression at 24 months, with a hazard ratio of 0.64, which was statistically significant. The first interim analysis, because remember this is a relatively fresh study, demonstrated a hazard ratio in the overall survival of 0.64, but this did not meet the uh, p-value cutoff for statistical significance. So at this point, we say that in the overall population, distalumab does not statistically significantly improve survival. However, you'd be very hard to press to say that in the DMMR subpopulation, that it doesn't have a benefit compared with placebo. Coming back to the forest plots, like Josh said, there's always a forest plot in these studies. One area where the benefit was a little bit less clear was a benefit in patients with stage 3 disease, um, with a progression-free survival hazard ratio of 1.03. Now again, relatively small numbers, so you can't take very much from it, but it is interesting, and again is quite logical, in that if you have less disease, the addition of distalumab over chemotherapy is going to have a smaller magnitude of response. It's just interesting that it is right on that line of equivalence. In terms of the secondary endpoint, the um, complete response rate in the DMMR cohort was 30%, so not quite that 100% rectal cancer complete response rate, but Still, nothing to uh, nothing to sneeze at, and interestingly, the overall response rate was fairly consistent across all subgroups, hanging around seventy to seventy-five percent in both DMMR, PMMR, and overall subgroups. The disease control rate was around ninety percent, again consistent across all subgroups, and the median duration of response was actually not reached in the DMMR subgroup, and eight point six months in the PMMR subgroup. So we're seeing that there is a response because even in the PMMR subgroup, the duration of response was better with distalumab than placebo. So there is some activity with distalumab in the PMMR group. It's just completely blown away by the activity in the DMMR group.
0: Michael, we we, we could already guess that in the DMMR group, distalumab is going to do what it's supposed to do, which is lovely. That's very Did true. The... Is there any kind of thought process why some of the patients in the PMMR group, so the proficient mismatch repair group, actually still get some benefit? I know we've seen this somewhat in other trials as well, but I think it sort of shows that you know the dMMR status or just like the PDL1 status or PD1 status isn't the be-all end-all when it comes to using immunotherapy, which is what I was trying to get at. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I just thought it would be an interesting discussion point.
1: And I suspect that you're not alone, Josh. I suspect the authors don't even know why distalimab had a benefit, but it's probably exactly, exactly what you said. I mean, there's been this association for years now with tumor mutational burden, which isn't necessarily married to deficiencies in mmr you can have tumor mutations in a whole bunch of genes Um, so there's probably other ways in which distalumab is active in patients with um, preserved mismatch repair proteins but there's not even a postulated hypothesis in the discussion of the article as to why they just said hey we observe this and it's great The last point that I'll make is in terms of safety, and this will be a quick point because it's fairly standard compared to what one would expect. The majority of the side effects noted were probably due to the carboplatin and paclitaxel, so high rates of hematological toxicity, high rates of fatigue, some peripheral neuropathy. In terms of immune-mediated adverse events, which I guess is what we're most interested in given we're looking at distalumab, The most common immune-mediated adverse events were hypothyroidism, rash, arthralgias, and elevation of AST. There were five deaths in the distalumab group, which is worth highlighting. Two of them were deemed to be related to the distalumab. So one was from myelosuppression. They don't go into too much detail. It could be immune-mediated myelosuppression, which actually I have seen with immunotherapy. It's incredibly rare. And the other one was septic shock. But again, if you're receiving distalumab and chemotherapy and you have uh, myelosuppressive toxicities and potentially sepsis or septic shock related in some way to your treatment, I would have thought that you would point the finger at the chemotherapy. The other three were unrelated to the uh, treatment under investigation. And there's a little throwaway line in the article that uh, mentions that the quality of life uh, questionnaires yielded no difference. In patient reported outcomes. So the addition of distalumab, it probably doesn't really significantly uh, impact toxicity, of course, except in the in the handful of cases where it does, um, but it definitely doesn't affect quality of life significantly. So the final word on ruby is that distalumab is almost certainly, we're still waiting for the statistics to bear this out, but early signs are that it is almost certainly better for patients with Deficient MMR endometrial cancer. In the overall population and in the proficient MMR population, the benefit is a lot less certain. Um, this is obviously something that we've seen across multiple tumour streams, and I guess the question is, will distalumab end up being pembrolizumab in colorectal cancer, where it really was deemed to not work at all in the PMR- PMMR setting, or will it be nivolumab in gastric and gastroesophageal cancer where, yes, the magnitude of benefit was higher if you had a greater CPS, but you still give nivolumab regardless? So that remains to be seen. Like I said, this is only an interim analysis, but it'll be interesting to follow it to its conclusion in the coming years.
0: And another option for patients. So, Michael, if you had a patient and they came in, and I think well we we'll use it as a DMMR rather than a PMMR because I, I think that as you highlighted so eloquently and uh, that PMMR, you, I don't think you can really make a, I give a, have a conversation about the benefit yet, but in your DMMR patients, if they came in and you tested for this and it was an MSR MSI high, deficiency in the MMR, would you talk to them about adding this immunotherapy agent to their treatment?
1: I absolutely would. And I wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be this agent because, uh, there was another keynote study of Pembrolizumab that also demonstrated a benefit. So it doesn't necessarily have to be distalumab, but there is a mounting burden of evidence across multiple tumor streams that if you have an MSI high, uh, MMR deficient cancer, then immunotherapy is likely to be of benefit. And the main point, as you mentioned, Josh, is to test for it. Remember to test the uh, MMR proteins on your immunohistochemistry, see if they still stain. And in Australia, obviously, distalumab is not approved, as mentioned. But if you can't get pembrolizumab, which I can't remember if it's uh, approved for endometrial cancer, I don't think it is at this point, but have a a conversation with your friendly drug reps and drug companies. Because I have seen cases where even in uh, cancer types where there is no phase three huge trials on whether there's a benefit for DMMR cancers of that type, if you find a DMMR cancer by first principles, the drug company will at the very least consider giving you access to some form of immunotherapy. So... Immunotherapy in dmmr cancers is very much an area that I think will continue to grow and will continue to see more and more approvals for it. And it very well may be the new tmb, you know, in the states they've got a a, a tumor agnostic approval for high tmb cancers. It might be it doesn't matter if it's a skin cancer or a colorectal cancer or an endometrial cancer or whatever cancer if you can dis- display a deficiency in mismatch repair proteins then you will be able to get access to immunotherapy.
0: And I think something might be coming along quite similar to Australia, but it will be an out-of-pocket expense. But, yeah, just being able to look at the evidence, knowing that many of these drugs, when you cross-reference them, actually have similar, similar outcomes, which is good. It's good for the patient. It's good for the clinician. Um, but still lots of unanswered questions in the immunotherapy realm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always the case. The more we find out, the more questions we have. And in case you're wanting a summary of this Pembrolizumab trial, which is not a keynote trial, interestingly, um, we will include a link in the episode description and there'll be a post on our website in the Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind newsreel.
0: And it's really interesting, Michael. They were both released on the same day. So Pembro definitely doesn't want to get left behind. But it'd be interesting, one day we're going to see head-to-head trials Because that's going to be the next step with these guys
1: Absolutely There are a couple of minor differences which we won't go into But they both demonstrate the same sort of thing uh, DMMR, it responds well to immunotherapy so, But we figured we uh, have talked a lot about pembrolizumab on this show And we would give distalumab its moment in the sun Yep. So Michael, tell us, what, what are we doing next week? So next week, Josh, we have our first fan request. So if you want to have a specific topic covered on oncology for the inquisitive mind, please send us a line. And we always put the email in the uh, in the episode descriptions, but it's inquisitiveonc at gmail.com. And so we'll be talking about how best to approach ductal carcinoma inside you of the breast. So something a little different, and we hope to see you then. See you then. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.